Note, this interview has a few curse words in it. Nothing worse that you get out of a PG-13 movie, though. Also, my interviewee's mic is a little staticky. I have a feeling that in today's day and age, online recording is a little strained more than usual. I did the best I could to clear it out, so hopefully it's not too much of an issue for you. Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fever Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. Hope everyone is safe and healthy during this unprecedented time in our lives and finding ways to still be geeky. For today's guest, I first was introduced to the artwork of the artist known as Another Well-Kept Secret, thanks to Tumblr and Sherlock. Her artwork shows a stylized humanity with very animated features. And she has a romantic flair that shows up that love is indeed at the heart of everything she does. Her real name is Kelly, and she's from Tennessee. She's been on my list to interview for a while, but got bumped up partially because she's been upping her commissions to help offset the current economic downturn the virus has caused so many. Kelly, thanks for geeking out with me. You're welcome. It's glad I'm big. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm already messed up. That's a, oh, it's crazy. Oh, I mean to say you don't have to cut that out. Everybody should know that I'm a... Uh... A mess and a half, but I meant to say, uh, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I think we're all kind of going through a new new era in our lives right about now. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, your artwork is is gorgeous and amazing, and and, and for. Anyone who's listening, just a full disclosure, I am a Patreon supporter of Kelly, and I have had her commission uh, stuff for me before, so uh, I find your style very interesting and very different, With especially with uh, Sherlock Holmes. What I like about it is that you can see the influence of the modern Sherlock, but they're still their own creations, you know, if that makes sense, where it's, yeah, it, there's um, definitely some aspects of Martin and Ben in there, but it's not Martin and Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been told that I draw kind of a, a personality, if that mm -hmm. makes really the actor, because mm -hmm. that's, when I draw Sherlock, that's definitely not Ben. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, have you been, have you been doing art since like a little girl? Is it something that you just got into? How long, tell me kind of your origin story of what made you start putting, you know, pen to paper or stencil to computer or whatever. I, uh, apparently have been doing artwork since I was a little bitty thing. I don't remember getting started. Particularly my grandmother did tell me that you used to put me in the high chair and like before I could sit up by myself, so I'd kind of be drunkenly lumped over to the side and she'd give me pencils and she said she never saw me scribble. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that's a good thing. But uh, so apparently I had a love for just putting things on paper, making things, but I don't know, like I have no recollection of deciding, well, this is what I want to do. I was just always interested. And that may be because of my grandmother on my father's side. She is an artist and comes from a, uh, a line of artists. My great-grandmother did artwork, and my great-grandfather on that side used to do uh, cartoons, and he wanted to be a cartoonist so bad, and uh, I have his obituary in my room, actually, and a part of it uh, listed said that he, he had just high aspirations, he wanted to be a cartoonist, but there was no real call for it. 
especially around here. So he ended up going into like sign painting, gold. I think it's called gold leaf. Mm-hmm. And he did signs for a living. And he actually made a small fortune. Not like a huge fortune. Just he managed to stay afloat during the Great Depression because he painted so many going out of business signs. That's which good, is I guess. <laughs> ironic. And I remember looking at his uh, obituary and thinking, "I've done it. I've done it, Great Grandpa. I've uh, achieved your dream." I don't know <laughs> how you feel about all the porn, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what made you? you- what made you realize that this, I mean, yes, it's still technically a hobby, which I hate using that because it sounds that there's such a negative association with that word. But, um, you know, what made you realize that, that you were actually, you know, quote unquote, good at this, that it was something that you could, you know, make money with and whatnot? Well, I think it was mostly because when I was a kid in, in elementary school, um, I was not very popular with people. I didn't talk a lot. I was very shy, very introverted. Uh, I'm a lot different these days. I just didn't like talking to people. I didn't want to touch, look at nothing. So I was very unpopular with the other kids. I was like an easy target. But there was one thing that I was good at, and that was drawing. And usually when there were group assignments or something to do with artwork, everybody was like, I want to be on Kelly's. (laughs) I want to be with Kelly. And it was like, oh, I, I, I thought everybody could do this, but I guess not. And I used to get um, the assignments, especially when I was in fourth grade. And this was when uh, my parents were going through a divorce. So I was having a very hard time. Uh, and uh, my grades suffered. But any uh, assignment that had anything to do with artwork, I like tore at it. And I would make A++. And the teachers were like, oh, my gosh, did you draw this or did your parents draw it? I was like, no, it's me. So I guess it was uh, just people responding to what I was doing. I didn't realize that I had anything to offer until people were just pointed it out to me. Now, have you taken any any classes? Is it all self-taught? I took classes at school. Every semester I was in an art class. So that's the bulk of my learning. And then who would you say are your biggest influences? I, I mean, I kind of, I see a little bit of Miyazaki in your style. Thank you. I am so happy you said that. I love Miyazaki. stuff <laughs> <laughs> is so whimsical. There's this, uh, and I'm going to butcher it. I know I am, but I'm not even going to try to attempt what the word is. But there's something that he, uh, that either, it's either Japanese in general or him in general, where it talks about speaking in the silence. Mm-hmm. There's like, because you see in parts of his movie where there's long stretches of silence, but it's still telling the story and a lot's being said without anything actually being said. And that inspired me so much and it moved me so much. His work did. So I can absolutely see why he would bleed into my work. Uh, What other influence would you say is on your artwork? Disney. Absolutely. I used to, back in the VCR days, (laughs) <laughs> there's this thing that at least my VCR did it where you could pause it and it would very very slowly go through each frame mm-hmm. and I don't know how I made the VCR did it but I did it <laughs> yeah basically super slow motion yeah super slow motion and I could see the animation frame by frame 
and that fascinated me. And so I ended up learning like really key things like stretching, how like during between uh, between one frame and another, like if the the character's body elongates. And sometimes you'll see people post. There's one of Aladdin's face where his jaw looks kind of wonky because mm-hmm. it's in frames but it's but when you smush it all together it smooths out and like gives the illusion of movement so i learned things like that accidentally by doing all those super slow-mos of my old vhs tapes fern gully quest for camelot uh those aren't disney <laughs> but they're also pretty big well, they're don bluth who who got to start with disney so yes yes don bluth i love Land Before Time, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, his movies. Great Mouse Detective. (laughs) Love it. Which, uh, speaking of The Great Mouse Detective, Sherlock. What drew you to Sherlock? I have always been a huge Sherlock nerd. And I I was thinking about this the other day. What was it in particular that got me hooked on Sherlock? The only thing I can think of was uh, Wishbone. (laughs) Thing. I know exactly the episode you're talking about. That's why I laughed. Yes, there's, a, there's a Sherlock Holmes episode. Exactly. Uh, he wears the hat. Yes, it was so adorable. And I, th- I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, the Hound of the Baskervilles, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. There was that one, and there was also a DuckTales episode with the Hound of the Baskervilles. It was based on that. And those two things together, and I was like, oh, it's from the same thing. And... <laughs> Like I was fascinated by that. And so that, I think that's what got me into Sherlock Holmes at a young age. And then I just kind of consumed everything Sherlock Holmes related. So I don't really have a particular favorite. That's probably a lie. I think my favorite is the Granada version. Mm-hmm. With I really, really like that version. Yeah, but that was the version that I was introduced to. My mom was a huge uh, fan of Sherlock Holmes. And I was... I'm old enough to have been alive when those were first broadcast, (laughs) and my mom was, I would would watch those with my mom. Did you know Miyazaki did a uh, Sherlock Holmes? Yes, it's in my to-watch list. I'm uh, Sherlock Hound. Sherlock Hound. It is very, very cute. Very cute. Now, you're a huge uh, John Locke shipper, for those of you who may not know the phrase. John Locke is those of us who uh, ship Sherlock Holmes and John Watson as a romantic couple. What about that pairing uh, draws you. What's interesting is I never thought about it at all ever until Sherlock BBC Sherlock came out. Mm-hmm. It just never ever crossed my mind to even consider that it would be like a romantic thing. Now I loved them as a pair, and I wanted them always together. But I don't know if that's me being if that's like the AC part of me that doesn't just automatically jump. To a relationship kind of thing or if I just didn't see it I can't like go back in time and try to figure that out but I do remember watching I think it was episode one and I remember thinking holy shit that's gay <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like oh and it just like dawned on me and the like flashes from all these other shows bombarded me and it was like oh it makes so much sense in any context here uh i can't think of a single one where it's i guess sherlock holmes in the 22nd century wouldn't it wasn't too particularly shippy well there yeah i mean hindsight being 2020 i remember back 
back in ye old days when you got your fan fiction through web web circles and GeoCities yeah. websites, uh, I do remember seeing some ACD Sherlock Holmes stories. And my first thought was thinking about the Grimaud Holmes. I was like, yeah, they're basically a married couple. <laughs> like, oh, this whole time, of course they're married. But then I didn't think. <laughs> Kind of, I don't know. I don't know. It was like a weird kind of disconnect for me. It was like I had no idea. And then it was like, <gasps> like a dawning moment. Then again, like I went and this is really random. I went to go see, uh, damn it, what's the name of them? The one with the penguins dancing. Happy Feet. Oh, yes. I went Happy Feet with my friends. And after the movie, they were like, holy shit, that movie was really sexual. <laughs> and I, I didn't see anything. <laughs> I didn't see anything sexual in that. Movie. they're like kelly are you kidding there's x y and z and i'm like i don't know guys just, i don't pay attention to that kind of stuff a lot so sometimes you have to hit me over the head with a brick to pick up on anything like that but that only illustrates how homoerotic <laughs> the first episode <laughs> if i notice then it's you know it's pretty damn obvious <laughs> Well, and that kind of leads me into um, that you mentioned that you're asexual and you're very vocal about it on your Tumblr to the point where I, I you're almost like a, an, an advocate for it in a way. You get a lot of questions about it and all that. Was that something that you intentionally chose to talk about or was that something that you, you know, felt was, you know, talk talk a little bit about that decision to to be open about that? Lord, uh, I don't remember why I started talking about it initially. I'm sure if I went back in my uh blog but i think it was because i was trying to figure myself out well i know that uh especially in se during season series one of sherlock there was a lot of talk about sherlock possibly being asexual yeah. and so i was wondering if maybe you know with you drawing sherlock that somehow that that came about or was it you know that kind of I thing if it was anything around. connected to that i i wasn't around during season one i came aboard season two uh okay. and I don't think it was anything to do with a Sherlock-related question. I think, well, I got in trouble for a lot of questions that I answered too. Yeah. So I don't know all that. Like, I, you know, people make boo-boos. It's it's entirely possible, and so I had to. You'd think that'd get me stopped talking about anything, but no. you know how fandom is. You just keep trucking. Uh, I think somebody just just asked, "Is like, what is your sexuality?" I think that's what it was and I was just like I think I'm asexual and I think that's just what started it I kept getting more ass and I was just as honest as possible and I think a lot of them must have been younger than me people like struggling with it mm -hmm. I figured out what asexuality was when I was in college uh, which mm -hmm. isn't as late as people because I know some that didn't find out or didn't consider themselves asexual till the 30s 40s so in a way I feel like really blessed that I found out in college uh and a part of me is like man if I'd have known that sooner I wouldn't have been such a jackass in high school yeah. <laughs> or middle school for that yeah I myself consider myself demisexual sometimes asexual and so I I do know that that concept yes technically it's been around since the 70s but it's really only been recognized is the best word I can think of you know fairly recently um, yeah. In the last 10 years or so, people start, have started being a lot more open about that as a choice. Well, and you'd mentioned that, you know, in a way that, that kind of, it, would you say that it influences your art? You say that, you know, that there are sometimes you don't see the sexuality 
Uh, would you say that that influences how you uh, draw the uh, your art? I don't know if it influences because it's like one of those things have always been this way. So I don't know. I imagine so. A lot of people tell me that my not safe for work artwork looks very emotional and like the, the characters are connecting with each other and it isn't I guess it isn't just there to be kinky I'm not really sure any other way to draw it uh I have had requests that seemed a little unemotive to me I when I did live streams for patrons somebody would be like I want this position in this way and can you make this expression this way and it was like a part of me I don't want to say I didn't enjoy it. It was just like, eh, this doesn't feel like there's an emotional connection mm -hmm. for me. Personally. So I think it must influence me in a way as people often refer to it as Kelly porn. <laughs> I do, when I do my not safe for work art. And that means a lot to me. Like I'm really glad that all my uh, not safe for work stuff has so much feels in it. It took me a long time to realize that, you know, even identifying as an ace, like, uh, we come in so many different flavors. So, one asexual can have sex with their partner, want to feel that connection with them. Some are sexual repulsed, some aren't sexual repulsed at all, but uh, they masturbate and others don't. I mean, it just, there's no two people alike. We're all like snowflakes or thumbprints, and I hate using the word snowflake. <laughs> Especially <laughs> now, yeah negative connotation but i mean that's legitimately what it is and if somebody you know enjoys something or you know like i really enjoy drawing characters being emotional with each other and connecting on that level i don't necessarily want to participate in what's going on but i'm really happy for the characters <laughs> it's like oh man they're having such a good time look at them it's like none for me though <laughs> Well, and that that kind of leads into your your newer fandom. You've also fallen head head over heels in with Good Omens, uh, thankfully. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what were you familiar with the book? Uh, what you know, obviously the TV show is a heavy influence, but kind of what made you start getting into that? I had seen Good Omens stuff for years, and I'd always meant to read the book, but things kept getting in the way. So it was like one of those, uh, like on your to do list like Sherlock Hound is on your to-do list, uh, but I never got around to it. And then I turn around one day and they're like, Hey, this is coming out on Amazon prime tomorrow. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, Oh, hey, <laughs> this thing that I've always wanted to read is going to be a mini series. I can consume it quicker and I have time. So I'm going to do that. And I fell in love with it immediately. So, and then I read, what about it? Did you like, I liked the, the religious aspect of it. And I don't know how many people would say that. I consider myself a religious person, but mm -hmm. I'm not easily offended by things. So things that are might be sacrilegious in the show, if people consider it to be sacrilegious, I thought was very witty and very funny. And uh, it actually made me feel closer to my own idea of what religion is of what god is so that at the very end we're like did did she plan it like this the whole time kind of thing mm -hmm. oh well that's comforting even though it was the whole thing was a shit show <laughs> 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 like this from the beginning i wouldn't put it past her and that's, that's nice and it also made me and i know uh neil gaiman and terry pratchett i think they're both atheists 
I'm not entirely sure about. I know Pratchett was. I'm not sure about Gaiman. Yeah, Pratchett was. So I'm not sure like where they were coming from with it, but I like things, especially religion, being played a little bit more loosely. Things were very abstract when you get down to religion, and the fact that people take it very, very literally, I think, can be harmful because they take things out of context or they think they know what something's saying and they don't. And uh, at this point, it's like if somebody asked me, well, like, what was God in the flood? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, wait, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Did it happen? I don't know. Probably not. It's probably a metaphor. <laughs> but I mean, just stuff like that. It was like, it made me feel better that other people would like just played so so loose with it that it didn't matter. One of the things I noticed is that uh, three creators who are very well outspoken atheists, Terry Pratchett, uh, Joss Whedon, and J. Michael Straczynski, all three of them have done great work on the power of faith, which I find fascinating no, think, uh, that they're able to separate faith from God faith, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And that faith still exists for them. It's just a different definition for them. A friend of mine is an atheist, and I'm probably going to mess this up, but uh, apparently there are tiers of atheism mm-hmm. or something along those lines. Something uh, like the first tier is might be a god, but don't know. Second tier is probably not a god. Third tier is like no god or something. Mm-hmm. I'm probably butchering. <laughs> butchering. No worries. Uh, uh, I, I remember them telling me about that. I was like, that is fascinating. And they were telling me about... Uh, who falls in what uh, and well this is what this is what they said and i was like i don't know about that one of them said uh a, a true scientist cannot be a level three <laughs> like there is no god because be, be something because you can't prove it or something mm-hmm. so and i was like i don't know i'm pretty sure anybody could be level three and that's cool <laughs> <laughs> like to- totally cool anybody anybody can be a level three we're about halfway through now, and so now I kind of want to divot towards to uh, process questions more um, in terms of your art style. Now, I know doing art is is different from writing, and you write as well. Do you feel you approach your writing in it from a different creative standpoint from when you approach your drawing, or is it the same for you? Because I know every artist is different. The writing is, it is different because I do write sometimes. I find writing to be exponentially harder than drawing. Like, you can set a scene and get through it quicker. As it takes me two to four hours to do a comic page, depending on, like, how quickly I do it, what's going on in it. And a lot of them, like, not a lot is shown. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think the last I did of Whatever Remains, it's John taking Sherlock's hand and Sherlock pulling John into, like, a dancing position. Mm-hmm. And John's saying, I have a dance since before the war. And John's like, and Sherlock just says, do what I tell you, basically. Which is only two frames. Mm-hmm. And it took like two to four hours. I could have written, like, John takes Sherlock's hand. John, oh, Sherlock pulls John closer and says, mm-hmm. super fast. But I don't know, writing is just so hard because drawing, it's easy to make it look pretty. Writing, I can't for the life of me make it pretty. Now, with your comics, do you already, you know, have the full story before you start the first one? Or has there been times when you're kind of making it up as you go along? I typically make it up as I go. 
usually. I have a rough outline at the beginning, and whatever the characters decide to do in the midst of it, they can do whatever. And 100% of the time, they tend to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> Which is cool. I hear, I hear that authors have that problem, too. Yep, yep. Uh, well, uh, it's one of the questions I like to uh, to ask all of my my writing is uh, you know, uh, George R. R. Martin talks about there are two types of writers: there are growers and there are pantsers. Growers are you know people who outline really detailed and know exactly every step, whereas pantsers write by the seat of their pants. I totally write by the seat of their pants. <laughs> and Nancy Cress is is well known for for being a pantser, and she and I talked about that on the podcast I I did with her, and she was like. I, I find it fascinating that, you know, every writer is different, but, you know, some, the people who are pantsers are typically also the same ones who talk about their characters, like, getting away from them and springing yeah. to life, which has happened to me as well, so. Yeah. <laughs> like, I like it when the characters do that, because it feels like you're doing them justice, I guess, like you're, they're flowing through you, supposedly. I wouldn't be able to stick to a very detailed outline. Hi, I'm Ogisa. I'm the creator of Dr. Puppet, and I'm geeking out with Andy Fiedler Sutton. Uh, thank you so much for watching my videos, and thank you for listening. You can find me on various social media at Angie F. Sutton. I also have a Patreon at that handle. For as little as $1 a month, you can support Geek Out, get the audio files a little bit sooner than the rest of the world, and receive behind-the-scenes stories from all of my episodes. Want to support me but can't afford a monthly commitment? I also now have a coffee account at that handle. You can also support me by reading and writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Finally, be sure to sign up for my monthly newsletter and see links to my social media and all the places you can listen to the podcast over at my website, www.angiefsutton.com. And now, back to my interview with fan artist Kelly, otherwise known as Another Well-Kept Secret. Now let's get into some of the more nitty gritty details. I know you have a patron and you've done live stream uh, drawing there occasionally. So I'm guessing you draw digitally nowadays, not not pan, you know, not on paper. I actually draw everything I do on paper, and then no. I scan to myself and fix it and make it pretty in there. Uh, so all the text, text color, anything like that is digital. The line art is all paper for the digital aspect what softwares do you typically use photoshop i have a very old version of photoshop and do you have one of those like the pen uh, systems yeah i have a tablet just a tablet. basic i don't even know how to say the white wacom wacom wake oh yeah and then for your in physical uh thing do you have a preferred type of paper or a preferred type of, of artistic unit that you like to use I like cardstock. I used to do it on printer paper, but something about the printer paper just, uh, it stopped feeling right to me, so I switched over to uh, cardstock, which is thick, uh, and doesn't have any tooth. Tooth is, like, well, there's a texture on the paper, mm -hmm. and really extra tooth helps you when you want to give something a little bit of meat to it, you know, and it's it makes smudging fun. But I don't want smudging because I'm doing line art. So no tooth, bright white cardstock is what I use. Eight and a half by 11. And I order it by the bundle. Now, I know uh, drawing is the same as writing, that each each drawing is, is different. But on average, how long would you say it takes you to do a piece of art from beginning to end? 
Uh, let's see, a comic. Anywhere from two to four hours. So that's I sit down. I, I usually fold an eight and a half by 11 and a half. Fold it in half. I sketch out what I want in a blue pencil, in a light blue pencil. Then I line it with a mechanical pencil. Then I scan it to myself. Once I scan it to myself, I clean it up, make it look really pretty. Then I uh, change the colors, put in the panels, put in the text and the talk bubbles. That takes between two to four hours. Again, it depends on what's going on on the page. But whatever remains takes longer than any of my other ones because I add shading to whatever remains. It's not a lot of shading, but still it's extra work. For a full piece of artwork, depending on how big it is, I'd probably say six, four to six hours, probably. It, again, it depends on if I know what the pose is going in, if I have a clear idea, because sometimes I can knock out a full piece, like the commissions I'm doing. Sometimes I can knock out a commission in two hours, mm -hmm. two to three hours. You know, I sit down, I know immediately what I want to do. I have like an image in my head. I sketch it perfectly the first time. <laughs> I line it, there's no mistakes. Scan it to myself. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's all done. Uh, actually, the most time consuming part is figuring out what I want to put on the paper. Well, and speaking of that, I don't want to ask how you get your ideas, because as a writer, I know that they come from everywhere. So I'm going to be a little bit more specific with, for example, Change of Pace was a comic that was very loosely based off of your own health issues. Yes. What made you decide to, you know, be as vulnerable as to, to, you know, put yourself out like that? I think it was my way of processing it, definitely. Because I remember right after surgery, I think it was the third day. Of recovery, I was sitting with my grandmother, and I thought, I can't do anything. I'm just sitting here. Your shoulder hurts really, really bad <laughs> after basement surgery. Or, you know, you just like you can't get comfy. And I thought, well, if I'm gonna be uncomfortable, <laughs> I might as well get something done. So I started. I started the first page thinking maybe I'll just draw my doctor's visit. Because the thing about my doctor's visit and the change of pace story is, I want to say, like, 95% true. Uh, other than, you know, it obviously not, I'm not Sherlock Holmes. And yet, <laughs> John Watson and I didn't run around the hospital and, and faint and somebody kissed me. Other than that, everything's pretty, pretty true. So when I went to my yearly, I made Sherlock have a yearly. See, I don't know if it works the same for guys or not. I've never researched that. But at my yearly appointment... When I passed out and had a seizure, they told me everybody's allowed one seizure, is what the doctor told me. Or not the doctor, it was a midwife, because the doctor wasn't available. So she had to do the pap smear. Uh, and so I put that in the comic. I just wanted to get that part out of the way, because that felt so ridiculous to me. Everybody's allowed one seizure. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. thing, I mean, it might be, mm -hmm. but it sticking in my head, everybody's allowed one seizure. And that was what my intent was. I thought maybe it was going to be four to five pages of Charlotte going to the doctor, passing out and having a seizure, and the doctor saying, everybody's a loved one seizure. But I just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I thought, well, I guess I'm just going to do the whole thing. And I'm glad I did because I'd forgotten some of it. Like I can't remember when I had a, a something on my brain, a lesion. When they thought they found a lesion on my brain, I 
had completely forgotten uh, what it actually was. And it's still in the comic. <laughs> I could go, <laughs> I bet it was just a, a blank on my anterior horn or something. I don't know. What room I was in is accurate. It's the same room. I drew the room I was in. The I don't think that the heart wasn't a visual of my heart. Because I had to just look up a chambered heart. But uh, everything else was pretty much exactly how I saw it. The IV in my hand, that's where my IV was. And the fall risk was on that hand. Like Everything was just very much exactly as it was. And I think it was a way for me to process what happened to me. I don't think I'm going to do it for my recent hospitalization just because that took so much out of me. I think it was because that one was a shock and a surprise. Mm -hmm. My most recent was not. And it was like something I expected. So I think it was more of me coming to terms with it and dealing with it. I don't feel the need to do it for the one that happened in November. Now let's uh, kind of continue a little bit about your, your Patreon. How long have you had a Patreon? Ooh, good question. And talk about the process. What made you decide to get one? What you know? How often do you post? That kind of stuff. All the technical details. Alrighty. Uh, do you know Consulting Smartass by any chance? Uh, if I do, it's not ringing a bell. Okay. Well, she's amazing, and I went to Dragon Con with her, and she said you should start a Patreon, and I said why. <laughs> she, <laughs> she said so you can make some money as an artist. And I said, but I already do everything for free. Why would anybody want to, you know, pay me money for what I already do for free? And she said, people would love to support you. And I just remember that sticking in my head. And I thought, okay, when I get home, I'll make a Patreon. And so I did. And went from there. I think I've, I post almost every day. I have Saturdays off. I post twice a day currently. Post twice a day, Monday through Thursday. Friday is a not safe for work drawing. Saturday I'm off. Sunday is a not safe for work. Rinse and repeat. But now that I'm off work for the foreseeable future due to current happenings, I I post twice a day, Monday through Thursday, and a commission on top of that. So it's three separate pieces. Friday, two pieces a not safe for work, a commission. I'll probably still keep my Saturday off because I need to rest, and Sunday will be a not safe for work and possibly a commission, and then start again. And then you've got two comics going on, one Good Omens and one Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Want to talk a little bit about what those two plots are about? Uh, the Good Omens one is just straight smut. <laughs> <laughs> that is all it is. I did a comic before called That Certain Night, and it was about just what happened after the Ritz and how they, you know, go to the bookstore and confess their feelings or whatever and uh, i decided to leave it pg pg 13 maybe depending because i can't remember if any of either of them cusses in it and then i thought well i'm gonna do a not safe for work sequel for those that enjoy that kind of thing and they ran away from me <laughs> in any way you can possibly imagine it wasn't supposed to be as long as it is i think i'm on page 39 <laughs> <laughs> and they just keep wanting to go so I guess I'm just going to let them keep going until they burn themselves out. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to be too mad about that. <laughs> and then the uh, Sherlock Holmes storyline. Tell me a little bit about uh, that. The Sherlock Holmes story is my first attempt at an original work, like an original pastiche. And I am really enjoying it. 
I actually started a couple years ago and got to page 78, I think. I was on page 78 of my first run of Whatever Remains. Then I had the pacemaker surgery. So that was two years ago, two and a half years ago. I had my pacemaker surgery all of a sudden, randomly. I came home the day after the surgery and I knocked my hard drive in the floor. And I have concrete floors. Yikes. Lost all 78 pages. And I cried and cried. And I think it took me uh, until 221 Beacon. So that was April. From November to April, I didn't touch it. I didn't do anything with it. And since When Do You Call Me John talked to me uh, at 221 Beacon and was telling me how much she loved Whatever Remains. And she said, when are you going to pick it back up? She had no idea any of that had happened to me. And and then it like moved me because I was like I didn't know anybody cared about it. I was like, oh okay, uh, I think I'm gonna start from square one again because my uh, my art style has changed. And every single artist, no matter who they are, from page one to page whatever, their art style is gonna change because it's an evolving thing. It doesn't stay. It's not stagnant. It's always evolving. So if anybody is a perfectionist and wants their comic to look exactly the same from page one to page 200, don't do comics. <laughs> because it's going to look insanely different from page one to page 200. And you can't keep scrapping it and starting over because the same thing is just going to keep happening. And you can't keep constantly wanting to go back and revising it. It's just one of those things. I don't know if writers go through the same thing. Like, uh, is it the same story or is it the same skill level from page one to page 200 probably not, not for, i was gonna lot. say not for me <laughs> probably learned a lot during that time but you can't like constantly being going back i once heard somebody say this and it was very wise you can't create and destroy at the same time if you want mm. something to be done you just gotta make it and don't worry about revising it to death or erasing it or redoing it to death just get it out there that's the only thing you gotta worry about I forgot what I was talking about. No, whatever remains. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a pastiche. It's a Sherlock Holmes story based in 1920s London. And uh, after World War One, <laughs> Take one. Uh, after World War One, I, I, oh my goodness. And I don't know what inspired me to, to do a noir kind of thing like that. I think I just like the hats and the coats. And, and and the the idea of speakeasies and rum runners and gangsters, you know, and I have no idea what the lingo is like. I have no idea what life is like. So every single page I do, I'm like, oh, I don't know if <laughs> this is right. But the point is not to like get hung up on that stuff. It's just to have fun. I'm not sure anybody else cares when they're reading it. They're like, hey, nobody would have said that word in that time. Mm -hmm. Not accurate. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are people like that. That's why you have editors and, and stuff. But I think people care more about the story than little things like that, usually. If I do make a huge mistake, I want to be corrected, though. And then talk a little bit about your porn for charity that you do. Porn for charity is so much fun. I thought, people really like porn. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't drop them at all until I started my Patreon. I thought, how can I make a little bit more money to help me, you know, pay some of my bills, especially medical bills. 
I thought, I know, I'll draw porn. Maybe people will be interested in that. And so I made a new tier, and I think it was a $5 or $4 tier. And I got a lot, a huge response out of it. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> I had no idea people were interested. And then it was one of those ace moments. I was like, oh, yeah. Mm. So that's when I started doing that. Everybody seemed to like it. And I thought, well, well I want to be able to do good with this. Not that I thought I was doing anything wrong but just people really like porn and i had all this porn stashed away that only my patrons were seeing and i thought well what if i put it all in a huge pdf file give it to my patrons for free because they already have it and then sell it for like five dollars online for 15 20 30 images at a time and i can donate whatever the proceeds are to a charity and maybe i'll make a hundred dollars that went over spectacularly well. And I think in my most recent one, I raised $1,000 for Alzheimer's research, nice. which is mind-blowing. Because I was like, wow, $1,000, that's huge. That's a lot of money. And then I thought, ah, this is great. I'm doing a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not, I said I was religious before. I don't think uh, God particularly cares if, if I'm drawing. Yeah. I really don't think so. But it would be, I always have this joke where uh, I die, I go to heaven, I'm at the pearly gates, and I think St. Peter's supposed to be there, but for the sake of the joke, God's there. And uh, (laughs) I think that's Catholicism, St. Peter. Mm -hmm. Anyway, God's there, and God's like, "Mm, Kelly, looking through a book, you know, the book of life or whatever. And God's like, mm, you know, I was like, well, uh, you drew porn, so that's a mark against you, but you donated it to charity, so now you're even. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, God's going to be like, uh, would you mind doing me a commission? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I usually tell that joke, and everybody is like, oh, yeah, right. No, God would totally be down with this, like, oh, girl. Now, for those who may not know how to get a hold of you, tell people where they can find you, about, you know, all of your various websites and handles and whatnot. Yeah, you can find me at Another Well-Kept Secret on Tumblr. I'm a Well-Kept Secret on Twitter. I have a website, anotherwellkeptsecret.com, and on Patreon, Another Well-Kept Secret. And tell me a little bit about your current commission uh, process that you're doing uh, to help raise your own funds. Uh, Yeah, I got laid off last week, actually. Unfortunately, due to everything that's going on, it was by choice. I'm one of the very few waitresses that has a side job i have a side job i have i have another way to make income and i want them to earn money and without me there they're gonna earn more money but at this point i think the restaurant may close anyway but i did what i could at the time but uh anyway so i need some form of income so i'm opening commissions for patrons only at the moment five at a time and so I'm not overwhelmed, knocking those out, opening it to another five. And once all my patrons are taken care of, satisfied, then I will open it up to the public. And I'm not sure how long it's going to last, however long the current situation lasts, and I'm without a job. So I could be doing it for a couple weeks or a couple months. I just don't know. As you may know, um, one of the questions I try to ask all of the people I interview is, what are you currently geeking out about and why? Hmm. Okay, I'm a really bad geek. I <laughs> don't. I like go into fandoms for really, really long stretches of time, like years and years and years and years. And I don't break out of them 
for years and years and years. <laughs> I can't have two main focuses at once, typically. Like, I'm doing Sherlock and Good Omens, but, uh, like, I can't have a whole bunch at once. I can be casually interested in some things. Like, uh, I enjoy Miraculous Ladybug, mm-hmm. but I don't draw any fan art for it, and I don't read any fic, really. I just enjoy it for what it is. So there's that level of geeking out over something, which is pretty mild, and then there's, like, Sherlock Good Omens level where I'm, like, constantly drawing, talking about it, or um, reading fic. Right. Well, I guess, that. is there some, is there a, a movie or a book or a podcast or uh, music that you've been, you know, really, really interested in, maybe not necessarily to the point of reading fic or, or whatnot, but that you've been telling all of your friends about? And I'm so boring. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm really excited about Final Fantasy VII, the remake. Were you a fan of the original? Uh, kinda. I didn't play it. I watched my cousin play it. And I'm <laughs> not going to play this one. I'm going to watch my brother play it. Not that I'm not good at video games. I'm very good at video games. But So um, what about it is drawing you? Why are you looking forward to it? Childhood. Nostalgia. Absolutely. <laughs> 110%. I bought the new Kingdom Hearts game when it came out. And I think the last time one was released was when I was in high school. And I totally bought that thing, and I sat there and I played it uh, just because of the And that's it. What else have I been excited about? Any any fanfics you want to recommend? All the fanfics. <laughs> <laughs> or fanfic writers? If, uh, if I'm not reading or drawing, then I'm not alive. So if I'm not posting something or drawing something, I'm reading. I have so many Sherlock wrecks. It's not even funny. I have 94 saved on my Kindle. Mm-hmm. And there's only 26 for Good Omen, so that's not that's not too terribly bad. Uh, I don't think I could wreck just any one thing. I wish I could narrow it down to like a few things, but it's like, oh my god, there's so many. All of them. Just go read all of them. Really, just, just start with number one and read. That's usually what I do. Is I just go down the list. They're all fantastic. I really like AUs. I'm a real big fan of AUs. It's like the same characters just stuck in a different situation. I must admit, my last fan, big fandom I was really into was Quantum Leap back in, the, and this was after the show. It was, it was early 2000s. And so technically, by definition for the, the you know, everything is an AU in Quantum Leap because you get the time awesome. zones and whatnot. But at the same time, they're all still the same. But I, so I was never really drawn to Sherlock AUs, but then suddenly I started reading them. Now they're like my go-to thing. I love all the various AUs. They're great. They're fantastic. It's like a whole new book, but I call it uh, fast food. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's like you already know who the characters are, you already know their personalities, you know in a general idea what's going on. You're just immediately thrown into the meat of the story, which is great. You don't have to read the first chapters of "Hi, my name is" and "I do this" and get introduced like, to the character, Mister Exposition. Yeah, exactly. And and so you're just like immediately in it, and it's I call it fast food. It's like it's my fast food, and it's delicious, and it gives me exactly what I need. <laughs> gargoyles <laughs> oh yeah actually we st- my wife and i started that last night we started re-watching gargoyles again partly really nostalgia we were wanting something safe and i was like it's been forever and i'm like man the show's still really good <laughs> really good I'm, I'm on season two someone you've watched it before uh yeah back when it was originally on 
Yeah, they're, they're like in Avalon or whatever, and they're mm. like traveling through time right now in season two. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> I love this. So I guess that's something I'm interested in right now. Okay. Well, we are getting to the end. So my my last final question is, uh, as an artist and as a fan artist specifically, um, what piece of advice would you either give yourself when you were little or to someone who was wanting to become an artist? Exactly what I said a couple minutes ago. You can't create and destroy at the same time. I don't know how many times I started a project and scrapped it because I wasn't meeting my own expectations. You are never going to meet your own expectations ever. And if you do randomly meet your expectations, savor that because it's so rare. Like just, just frame it and hang it up if, if you love it, because very rarely are you going to just absolutely love anything you do. Don't scrap it. Just keep going. Keep pushing forward. It's no one else is going to create it, but you, you're the only one that can because it's in your head and nobody else's. So put it on paper. Don't draw a line and erase it because it's not perfect. Just keep going. That's my advice. And now it's time for Angie Geeks Out. I jokingly want to say I've been geeking out about the coronavirus. Now, in all seriousness, the pandemic is a genuine crisis and social distancing is needed and an important way to stop the spread. But as everyone has been moving to safer at home and experiencing a bit of cabin fever, on top of organizations figuring out creative ways to keep in touch, there have been a lot of new ways of experiencing the world. Many museums are offering up virtual tours of their exhibits, theaters and musicians have pivoted to webinar-based technology to share performances, and people have been coming up with new ways to play board games with people they can't see in real life. I've been sharing a lot of these over on my Contents May Vary Facebook page, and everything has been a joy, whether it's the Dropkick Murphys providing a free online St. Patrick's Day concert, a 17-minute YouTube video of Disney Jungle Cruise skippers giving a quarantine version of the ride, or authors and celebrities offering up a free story times and ebooks to download, there's been an outpouring of geeky options. My favorite, though, has to be John Fidemore's Cabin Fever, a variation on Cabin Pressure, where he plays Arthur Shappy. He's now at episode four, all titled Fitten. While we are indeed living in an unprecedented time in our lives, one of the few bright spots has been seeing how the arts have stepped up to get us through. I know it's helped me. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Kelly for letting me interview her. Thanks also to Alyssa Stern of Dr. Puppet for her mid-show plug. You can hear her interview on episode 46. You'll notice that next episode is my 50th, I'm hoping to do something a little special for that, so stay tuned. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picnikin, available via the free music archive. More information about the podcast is available on my website, angiefsutton.com.